Hey guys, this is AC, and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. Howdy how, y'all. Welcome to another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. I'm Aswi, and joining me today are AC... What's up, guys? Anu. Yo, what's good, everyone? And, of course, our resident jazz fan, Abi. How's it going, everyone? Good to be back. It's good to have you, man. One of my favorite episodes we've ever done of Brown Man Won't Jump was the episode right after the jazz collapse where Abi had one of the most epic rants that I've ever (laughs) heard. And it was honestly a privilege (laughs) to be able to host an episode having this man share his feelings raw to an international audience i don't know if i should take that as a compliment but <laughs> thank you it's the ultimate I, uh, compliment, yeah, ultimate the ultimate compliment. compliment. <laughs> you, you know it's interesting uh, according to our, our numbers one of our most popular episodes actually featured you Obi. so uh you know you're pretty popular with the, the global fan base we got going on for us uh, what can i say i'm a household name <laughs> <laughs> Well, guys, what do you guys think of this past weekend's Christmas Day games? I mean, hey, Abby, your Jazz won against the Mavs, one twenty to one sixteen. We won against the Mavs team that didn't even have their best player, and we barely even won that game. So I don't know. <laughs> wow, you're you're just dripping in confidence for your team. Huh? <laughs> I don't know. I I have zero words. Adushan, one of his Christmas wishes was that we would have kind of an uninterrupted Christmas Day slate. And that was granted in a way because, yeah, all the games took place. But it felt to me like they were shells of what we would normally get if all those teams were at full strength. So it was almost more sad than happy to, to watch the Christmas games. I mean, you know, I still tuned in where I could, but probably less so than I've ever done before on Christmas, in part because... You know, they're just a bunch of replacement guys out there, unfortunately. Yeah, it really did suck. Uh, my wish did get granted in, in some way, but... And we did see some really cool moments, uh, like a lot of cool highlight plays that happened on Christmas. But again, it's not the same when you don't have a lot of competitive games, especially with some of the more highlighted, high-profile teams in the league. I'm just happy that we got to see basketball at all, because... With the way things were going with the whole COVID situation, it could have been canceled. And it was cool to see um, uh, the Bucks come back from being down, like, I think with 12 against the Celtics. So that was always interesting. So that's always cool to see. Yeah, you know, Anu mentioned some of the highlight plays. And, you know, a couple come to mind. Obi Toppin's under the leg dunk was spectacular. Nick Claxon's alley-oop on top of LeBron for basically a game-winning dunk was incredible. But to me... The play of the evening was the incredible defensive stop by Giannis Antetokounmpo, where he basically oh, yeah. stopped the ball handler. Some of the other made a rotation that him and nobody else in the NBA can make and got that block shot and part of that comeback that Abi was referring to. I thought that was the play of the game and a sign that, guys, let's not forget, we talk about all other MVP candidates, but Giannis is still a fucking beast. Yeah, I remember watching that exact play with Ubi, and we like both like jumped out of our seats like, holy shit, like, 
Giannis is like doing a repeat of his whole performance back in the finals, and that guy is just absolutely amazing with the type of defensive rotations he can make. It's crazy, you know, that last year Rudy Gobert won the Defensive Player of the Year award, but there's no way in hell he could have done like anything that Giannis can do on the defensive end. This guy's an absolute monster. It was crazy that he won the award over Ben Simmons, who even though I hate that guy, I still think he <laughs> should have won the award. Oh, man. But I'm even more shocked that he won it over Giannis. So there's no way Gobert could have ever done something like that to stop that kind of play. Personally, my favorite play of the entire night was when Jokic was twerking at the beginning of the Nuggets game. <laughs> 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 I mean, have you ever seen someone make a ref laugh so hard that they can't even do the opening jump ball? Like, that is NBA history right there. I mean, they don't call him the Joker for no reason, right? So, uh, living <laughs> up to his namesake. I think there was also, we have, we have to consider, during the LA and the Brooklyn game, when James Harden was telling Nicholas Claxton to play defense on um, Westbrook, and I just thought that was funny, considering who it was actually coming from. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> James Harden, you know, even in the game where he's spectacular and he still has certain moments, I mean, there was one transition play that comes to mind where uh, it ended up being a LeBron layup, and James Harden's effort on that play was... So embarrassingly bad. I mean, he didn't even <laughs> attempt to stop the ball, rotate anyway, no attempt to take a charge. He kind of just like let him go right by, kind of just pointed his finger. So yeah, he was doing that all night long. Harden, keep being Harden. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, we invited Abby to come here today, not just to talk about the Christmas weekend, but really to break down his Utah Jazz team. Because this team is really playing well this season. I mean, they're a top five offense and defense this season. Ubi, that's something to be proud of, isn't it? It is, but I do want to see them do more of this in the playoffs. And I don't want us to just be another regular season team where we destroy the regular season, but then in the playoffs we get we get our asses handed to us in the second round again. Because that was painful. When I cannot describe to you the feelings of pain, rage, anger, sadness that I felt watching that series. It was just really, really, really hard. Well, Abby, I kind of know the feeling. Being a great regular season team and then losing disappointingly in the second round. So, yeah, you don't need to describe <laughs> it to me, buddy. I know. Yeah, and, uh, me me three, because for, the, for a long time, the Raptors were a dominant regular season team in the Eastern Conference. And every time they would get into the playoffs, they would just get destroyed by LeBron. And we'd be then known as Lebronzo. So don't worry, buddy. I know you're pain. I guess AC's the only one who doesn't. Or do we count the 90s Knicks as that? (laughs) (laughs) You're going to sit here and talk to me about playoff pain. Get the fuck out of here. (laughs) I barely even know what the playoffs is, guys. I mean, it's been that kind of a run. At least you played it last year. Yeah, for sure. And it was a one-year wonder, apparently, the way this season's going. <laughs> but uh, I'll be... So my take on the Jazz is, you're absolutely right, okay? We don't know, based on the regular season, what's going to ultimately transpire in the playoffs. And that's where teams rightfully should be measured. But I think that one thing we should not do is fall into the trap of what a lot of analysts did the last few years with like a team like the Bucks, right? There were gradual improvements throughout last season that were there to be seen. We we meant we covered some of them in our podcast. 
And eventually that Bucks team, through a combination of luck, but also, you know, figuring things out and making certain adjustments that they started doing in the regular season, they went to another level as a team. And then they ended up winning a championship. So I think when I look at the Jazz, I'm looking at them through that angle. What are the things this season that they're improving upon that we can say we can extrapolate that to playoff basketball and, and think to ourselves, wait a minute, this team could have a very different outcome potentially. And I actually think this team is being slept on. There's way too much chatter out there about the other Western teams, specifically the Suns and the Warriors, and not nearly enough about the Jazz who are literally right behind them in the standings. And in a lot of metrics are maybe even a better team. Also, we mentioned that they're in the top five in offense and defense. But that understates how good they've been on offense. This is the best offense in the NBA by a mile. They average 116.2 points per possession, which is more than three points better than second place Atlanta Hawks. And by the way, it's not that far off from the 117.3 all-time offense mark set by the Nets last year. So let me ask you guys, when you're watching the Jazz, you know, they were already a good offensive team last year. Why have they gotten even better this year? I think there's like a lot of different factors that we can attribute to the Jazz's success in the regular season so far. First of all, I want to say that I think Donovan Mitchell has really improved this year. His yes, playmaking has completely been completely agree. His playmaking has been like phenomenal. Like I'm really impressed with with like with the reads he's been able to do. Like on defense, it looks like he's also trying a bit harder. And even though he's not like the best defender, I do like his effort more. And it's not like in the playoffs last year when he was getting blown by left and right. This time, he's a lot more engaged defensively. And I just think that. He's also just been better at finishing around the rim and he looks like he's like a bit stronger too. So he's been able to like absorb contact better and being able to finish easier on the rim. Abhi, I think you hit the nail on the head on some of the improvements from Mitchell. You know, it's interesting, Abhi. Uh, the Jazz do have the best offense in the NBA, but one other thing that's really important is that they actually lead the NBA in pace of play at 101.2. And that's going to be really important because they have a bunch of guys who can push the ball up the court to get those easy baskets to run up and down the floor. And a guy like Rudy Gobert and Hassan Whiteside, who I'm sure we'll get more into during the course of the podcast, they've been really good at you know securing defensive boards and pushing the ball up to the guards who are able to make plays out of that situation. So that's something that really contributes to how well the Utah Jazz are playing on the offensive end. Yeah, so I think... Absolutely worth talking about Gobert and Whiteside, and even Rudy Gay, for that matter, uh, is another addition who's made a big difference. But why don't we just start by looking at Donovan Mitchell, right? Because I'll be brought up how Mitchell has improved. And really every category that he highlighted, there's a marked statistical on-paper improvement that you can actually see. So he mentioned him being vastly improved as a finisher. Well, just last season... From zero to three feet, so basically talking about layup dunk range, he shot 60% from the field. This year, that's gone up to 71.3%. And how about from three to 10 feet? So it's not just the dunks, but also the floaters. He went from 41.8% last season to 49.1% this season. So now he's really a three-level scorer. But one other thing that's really improving for Donovan Mitchell, he's got a career high right now in true shooting, box plus minus, win shares. And 
a lot of that is also shot selection. So not only is he better from you know close to the hoop, he's taking a lot less mid-range jumpers. Last year, 20% of his shots were from the mid-range. That's gone on a 15%. Conversely, he's taking way more three-pointers, up from 42% last year to 46% of his shots this year. That shot profile is the kind of thing you get from the elite players. Finishing at the rim, hitting lots of threes. It's the kind of thing they can carry an offense. Yeah, to your point also, AC, did you know that he scored 260 points on jumpers off the dribble, which leads the Western Conference? Did you know that he trails only Steph and Trey Young for the most points on unassisted three-pointers, which is 150 so far? You talk improvement, it's there. It's it's phenomenal what he's done so far. You know, also you bring up a really good point, and that sort of basketball, that basketball itself, is super important when you translate it into the playoffs, right? One of the most important things you can have are guys who are able to create their own shots, right? Donovan Mitchell for years has been able to do this, but now he's doing it at a much higher and more prolific rate than ever. So, Albi, I definitely think you have something to look forward to when the playoffs do come, assuming Mitchell can take his regular season uh, highs and bring them into the playoffs with him. AC, I also want to add to your point about his driving. Mitchell has recorded the second most self-created field goals within 10 feet of the basket. So you combine what he's doing on the perimeter and what he's doing at, at the rim. I mean, this guy is everywhere. And with his athletic gifts, you know, the sky's the limit. Yeah, I kept telling like everyone that this guy has superstar potential that he could potentially be. It was on already a top 10 player, maybe even a top five player. And whoa, you know, wait, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. You're saying right now he's a top five player? No, no, no. I'm oh, saying no. he could be. Oh, okay, okay. I yeah. Was... Yeah, right. I was about to uh, blow my lid. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was saying, I was saying that like he could be a top five to 10 player. Well, sorry, oh, like a top okay. 10 to like five player, yeah. Right. Because, you know, he's, he's playing well, but, you know, we don't want to jump the gun here either, you know? I know, I know. But I'm really impressed with the way Dov Mitchell has been playing. And hopefully he can continue this into the playoffs. I think it, it changes the entire ceiling of your team. Because the number one thing that anyone could say, if you're going to look at the Jazz last few years and say, okay, it's not going to work in the playoffs, is that who's the guy that's going to make those difficult shots? The things that Anushan brought up in playoff basketball requires of you. But just some of the numbers that we gave. Not just that he's scoring efficiently, but that he's creating his own shot from the three-point line and from, you know, within the paint. That shows a guy that truly is, you know, option number one on a, on a playoff team. And I think he's a guy that if he plays like this, right now he is playing like a top 10 player in the NBA. Make no mistake about it. That's not a joke. It might sound weird to think of Donovan Mitchell like that, but that's the level that he's playing at right now. And if that persists with the kind of offense they built around him with so much motion and so many, like their offense is beautiful to watch. And one of the things that I've appreciated watching jazz games is this year, I feel like Quinn Snyder has even expanded the playbook even more to, to now they're not just doing that beautiful ball movement stuff, but they're even finding mismatches and targeting them on switches and things like that. Cause switches were, were one of the biggest problems that the jazz faced the last few years. They didn't have anyone who could punish switches. So Teams would switch against all the crazy motion, and then they didn't have any counter to that. This year, Quinn Snyder's like, all right, you're going to do that? We're going to we're just going to kill this, the mismatch. And a huge part of that is what Donovan Mitchell is doing. But guys, we can't talk about the Utah Jazz without talking about another guy 
who has frankly played like a top 20 NBA player this season. And honestly, on both ends, believe it or not. And that's Rudy Gobert. What have you guys seen from him this year? <laughs> oh, Rudy. <laughs> what, the- <laughs> what is that even? What? <laughs> what? what? Is something wrong? Dude, He's you realize he's your doppelganger, right? <laughs> <laughs> he really is. For those of you who don't know Abi, he's a tall, lanky fellow who's, you know, kind of like plays basketball in a very similar way. You know, he, he has length so he can block shots and he's kind of, you know, he really does remind me of Rudy Gobert. Oh, he he, he's a pain beast, to say the least. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't know if these are like low-key jabs, but I guess I'll take it. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, like... What I've really been impressed with Rudy is his, like his rebounding looks like it's improved a lot. Like defensively, it's like he's like absorbing every single rebound that comes his way, and he doesn't get killed as badly anymore when they switch on to him. And he is still one of the best screen setters and one of the best like um all like rim runners in the league. I mean, Abi, what you have with Rudy Gobert this season is something remarkable. It's honestly historic. He's averaging career highs in almost all shooting percentages, including increasing. His free throw percentage by 7%. He's had multiple 20 rebound nights. He's had about 19 double-doubles, if not more. This season, Gobert's on pace to average 15 points, 15 rebounds, and over 70% from the field. The only other person to do that was in 66-67, when Will Chamberlain averaged 24 points and 24 rebounds on the season, but on 68% from the field. So offensively he's having a hell of a season yeah and we all know what he can do on defense so this guy still is the premier shot blocker in the nba nobody affects shots more at the rim i think Giannis is close and obviously Giannis has more versatility to do other things but just in terms of purely protecting the rim keeping people below 50 percent at the rim he's still the one guy you can count on to do that and also you mentioned those offensive numbers i think there's two major reasons for that why he's improved so much i think he's improved his hands i think he's catching the ball better than he ever has before you know we all remember rudy gobert a few years ago even as as recently as last season having trouble catching difficult passes this year he's catching them in stride but the second part of that that i think is really improved it's not even captured in the statistics that us we mentioned is that he's an incredible passer now in the short role like he will read the court and find the open guy enough times that, you know, you don't think of him as like a high assist guy. He's certainly no Chris Webber or, you know, Vlade Divac type of passer, but he makes the right read enough times that you teams don't have to like worry about selling out to stop the role. And if you don't, he'll go and dunk on you. And the other thing is, you know, a lot of guys in the NBA look down upon Gobert because they see a guy who, frankly, got a very awkward post-up game whenever he does a turnaround you know hook shot it goes flying off the backboard and people look down on him for that but guess what he's limited that part of his game and he's focusing on what he's good at doing which is rolling to the hoop setting good screens as Abi pointed out and he can finish really well like if you don't put a body in front of him he will dunk it on you and that actually you know it's a huge part of why they have these amazing offensive numbers year in year out so I think Gobert has been absolutely fantastic to me he's been one of the clear 20 best players in the NBA and an easy choice for one of the all-NBA spots as of right now. Certainly maybe, you know, not first team over Jokic, but at least second or third team after, you know, Embiid probably, so I'd say third team. But he's been amazing. 
I mean, he's even showed up on some MVP ladder articles. Yeah, so, no, I think it's fair. Yeah. I think with Gobert, and this is something we've talked about a lot on the pod, he has very obvious and glaring weaknesses, right? But when he's able to do the things that we know that he can do best, you know, finishing at the rim, being the, one of the best rim runners, one of the best lob threats in the NBA, being arguably the best help defender in the NBA, doing those things and not playing outside of himself, right? Like how AC said, you know, not trying to do the goofy post-ups and wasting time on offensive possessions, you know, sort of being like a sinkhole on the offensive end, right? When he's able to do the right things, play within the offense, I mean, the Jazz really can go extraordinarily far, especially with a smart center. And I think over the years, Gobert has started developing more of his basketball IQ. And of course, like the other intangible things like his hands, things like that, right? So the more that he starts to flow within the offense i think the jazz really can go like really deep in the playoffs potentially and one of the problems that's really plagued the jazz the last few years is that their defense has gone to utter shit every time that gobert goes to the bench and you know people who don't watch the jazz then blame gobert they're like oh well if he's a defensive player of the year why can't he stop everything well the answer has been quite frankly their defense is only even remotely relevant because of Gobert. They don't have guys on the perimeter who are who consistently keep a, their man in front of them. But that's starting to change this year in part because of, of all people, the addition of Hassan Whiteside, a guy who, you know, when he came in the league, he was putting up big numbers and he got a nice contract from Miami. But pretty much since then has been thought of as a negative losing player. This season, he's had a bit of a resurgence and he's anchoring that defense pretty well even when Gobert is not on the floor. And to give you some concrete numbers on this, Abi mentioned earlier that Donovan Mitchell has improved as a defender, and that's true, but not that much as a defender. So like just last season, right, when Mitchell was on the court and Gobert was off the court, they allowed 117.3 points per 100 possessions, which again, it would be the equivalent of Brooklyn Nets' number one all-time offense. Like that's the amount of points they were conceding. This year, that's dropped 110.4 per 100 percent. It's not elite, but basically without Gobert, they're at least surviving, and that's in part because of what Whiteside's giving them. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. Like, It just feels so much better to have a reliable backup big that can um, hold his own in the paint so that when, when Rudy Gobert has to take a rest, then we're not getting completely killed. And it's good to have someone like us on Whiteside because he could start on other NBA teams. So having someone of his caliber coming off the bench is good. It's just that he's kind of a moron at times, and he does dumb things where um, he'll bite on pump fakes so many times, and I'm just sitting there thinking, why? You know this. Why are you doing this? And he does it time and time again. So aside from his you know grand stupidity, he's a pretty solid backup big. And he's better than Derek Favors, so I'm happy that we have him. Yeah, Abby, you mentioned a good point about a white side. Yes, he is a really good, reliable backup big. I do think that sometimes he has a lot of lapses on the court where he's like not really knowing where he's supposed to be or trying to do a bit too much. Like I, I think he believes he's white side of like 2015, 2016 back when he was really putting up those insane numbers. And he's not that he's not that player anymore, right? So he needs to sort of play within himself, not do anything too crazy, play the 15 to 20 minutes a, a night in that backup reserve big role. 
and and just do what he's supposed to do. But if he does more than that, you know, sometimes I think he really hurts the Jazz and what it is they're trying to accomplish. So we can't talk about Whiteside and not also mention Rudy Gay because Rudy Gay has been such an important player for your team, Abby. In lineups with Rudy Gay, the Jazz are plus 22.6 points per 100 possessions, and he's second in the team in true shooting, which is behind only Gobert. I mean, so far he's been incredible, and he's part of the Conley, Clarkson, Ingles, Gay, Gobert lineup, which is the Jazz's best lineup at plus 24.5 points per 100 possessions. To me, Rudy Gay is probably one of the biggest factors as to why I think they could have a little bit more success this year in the playoffs than they have in the past. Because he serves sort of two functions for them. The first thing he gives them is somebody besides Gobert out there with some actual size. So, I mean, they have Royce O'Neal, but they needed one more sort of bigger wing out there because teams would just pick on their little guards over and over again. Just have one more body out there you could throw at, you know, someone potentially like when you're facing a team like say the Clippers and you have, you know, if they're healthy, Kawhi and Paul George, now you have two guys who can throw at both of them and supposed to just one guy you could throw one of them at. The other thing that he gives you them though, and I think this is not something they've actually done too much of this year in part because of Whiteside's emergence, but down the road when they face one of those, you know, few teams that has a center that can force, you know, difficult rotations for someone like Gobert, he d- they does give them an option of someone who could be a small ball five because Rudy Gay has proven that he can hold his own on the glass. Now, he's not going to block shots or you know play any sort of conventional drop coverage or anything like that, but he, he allows you to be switchable so they can play something a little bit more like modern basketball and put Gobert and put Rudy Gay at the five in, in certain circumstances when they're facing some teams that are playing you know these really fast fives or fives that are stretching out to the three-point line. So that gives them some versatility. They haven't quite explored it just yet, but I think it's it's there now in their back pocket for when they need it in the playoffs. What I love about Rudy Gay, well, at least with the Jazz games that have happened to watch, Rudy Gay has always been a contributing factor in every single game he's played. And now it's not necessarily always scoring, but it's all the small things like grabbing the key defensive rebound, uh, blocking out on the, the major assignment. You know, he's fit into his role so well. And especially on the Jazz, who, like you said, AC, desperately needed like that four or five. I, in a way, he can play the five, but really a stretch four, right? That's switchable. Having a guy like that is extremely important in, on any team, right? Because, you know, the way that modern basketball is played, it's, it's a lot of switching. And if the Jazz want to employ some sort of coverage like that, they can use a guy like Rudy Gay. And even though his three-point percentage isn't necessarily high, there's many times... I'm watching Rudy Gay and he happens to just knock down two threes and they just it just swings the momentum of the game. So he's able to make those kind of plays where, you know, are, are kind of game shifters, really. So I definitely think it's going to be a super important guy for you for you guys to have Ubi in the playoffs. Yeah, I'm definitely happy to have someone like Rudy Gay on the team. I guess for me, I just question how much can I really count on him because he is 35 years old now, so... I mean, he still is really good, and obviously he's not going to, you know, be the guy that scores 20, 30 points for us, but I just don't think that, like, we should put all our, you know, eggs in this basket of Rudy Gay and thinking, okay, now that we have him, you know, we'll be fine, because I don't know, I just don't think we can solely rely on him to help cure all our playoff woes. Well, well, Abi, it, it's not like you're relying on him, because like you said, he's a 
35-year-old player, right? Yeah, it's a failure of your coach and your team and your entire game plan if a 35-year-old Rudy Gay is the guy that saves your team, you know? (laughs) It it has to come from your big two, right? It has to come from Donovan Mitchell. It has to come from Rudy Gobert. But also, it has to come from your front office addressing the weaknesses of your team, whether it be in free agency or in trades. To me, it's all about margins, Abhi. Playoff basketball is won or lost on the margins, right? There's no world in which Rudy Gay is expected to be even a top three or four contributor on this team in a given playoff series. I think that's why you have Bogdanovich. That's why you have Mike Conley, right? Obviously, you have Mitchell, you have Gobert. But he can fill a hole that's been there for this roster the last few seasons. And listen, Anu kind of pointed out that he has kind of an inconsistent jumper, but he can make a couple in a game, right? That's one playoff win you may have that you might not have out otherwise. If he does that alone, gives you a playoff game here or there, then he's doing his job for the role and the age that he's at right now. And I think he's more than capable of doing that. He's very experienced. He's not going to be afraid of the moment. You know, he's been in playoff series before. I think he gets you a little bit of better leadership as well, and he fills a much-needed hole. Now, that doesn't mean that he will be the cure-all, but to me, he's already given more than I thought that Rudy Gay would have given you guys this season. So it's a lot to look forward to, to have him in a playoff roster. You know, I see a lot of that is due in part with Quinn Schneider as well, right? I mean, he's done a good job this season sort of fixing up the glaring issues that they had in last year's playoffs. And of course, it's still the regular season, still early. But to make a guy like Rudy Gay become a key rotational piece, right? Especially at this age where he was having sort of down years in San Antonio. And now that he's on the Jazz, he's actually starting to pick it back up. Like, it's really good. And, you know, it's really, really impressive coaching. That being said, guys, the Jazz aren't a perfect team. And they're going to have a lot of issues. So let's talk about some of their weaknesses. Uh, What have you guys seen? So I just want to start off and just say that aside from Rudy Gobert, Hassan Whiteside, Royce O'Neal, and Rudy Gay, this team doesn't really have any other good defenders where our perimeter defense is really, really, really bad. And... I just don't want us to keep getting exposed, you know, like they're just going to attack Mitchell or attack him Conley, and it's going to keep happening over and over again. You know, it's interesting that you say that, Obi, and that was one of the major concerns that I also had for the Jazz, right? Because in the Western Conference, especially when you guys get to the playoffs, there's a lot of teams that have capabilities to space out the Jazz, right? And that was one of the major weaknesses, especially when... They're running that peel strategy that basically caused them to flame out of the playoffs against the Clippers because they were able to five out them. Now, they need to have their perimeter defenders being able to stay in front of their guys, right? They can't keep forcing Rudy Gobert to cover for every single mistake. And if that doesn't get shored up, then I really do think the Jazz are going to run into a lot of complications, even no matter how good their offenses or no matter how good Rudy Gobert as a individual defender is he can't keep on covering for mistakes and that's something that the Jazz really need to address or they need to instill within their perimeter guards like hey guys we we can't allow this to happen and this peel strategy isn't going to work I also just don't think that we have any reliable solution to really combat small ball because 
well, the best way to like combat it is, I guess, to have size. But in this case, you know, this is where I think Rudy Gobert's lack of offensive versatility really hurts us because we can't punish smaller defenders. And because his post game is so bad, he can't even finish on like smaller guys. So, and because our perimeter defense is bad, then we're going to keep getting punished like time and time again. So we're going to have to like hope that Rudy Gay can, you know, like cover and he can, you know, step up and be that small ball five that can defend um, uh, the opposing team's uh, small ball five. Well, my response to that, obviously, you're right that clearly Gobert is not the guy you want to punish a switch. But there are two ways to, to punish the switch, right? The first way is with the big guy punishing the little guy. The other way is with the little guy, in this case, most likely Donovan Mitchell, punishing the big guy who switched. And I think that this season, Mitchell has showed that he can do that. And if he can do that, that's all you need to happen, right? You don't need both guys to be switch hunters. Think about like all those playoff series when like LeBron would like run a, a pick and roll with Tristan Thompson. They're not using Tristan Thompson to punish the switch, but nobody would try to switch against James because he would kill switches. And so if Donovan Mitchell can take his game to another level, that sort of automatically solves a lot of the problems they had against switching defenses. I still think that ultimately they'd be better off playing Gobert than not just because, as Anu says, I don't trust their guards to be able to keep people in front of them. And I'm not entirely sure that putting Rudy Gay at the five will work because of that problem. But you do have that flexibility now. You did not have that last year. So... They're also trying things out against switching defenses this season. And so as a result, you know, they're getting a little bit more of a practice against it. So then like last season, when Ty Lue threw that at them, they didn't know what the hell was going on, basically. Whereas now this year, teams are trying against them. They're countering in various ways. The numbers show they're dealing with it pretty well. So I think at least so far, there's some positive sides here. But if I had to pick a weakness, I, I think you guys have both hit the nail on that. It's just a matter of can these guards hold up defensively. I will make a counter-argument, though, Abi and Anu, to both of you guys. If they can be the number one offense, if that can persist throughout the playoffs, can't they get away with being just a mediocre defense if they can really do this offensively? Because that might be the only way I see for them to really make a deep run here. I would say that, and I would agree with you, but in the playoffs, you know, we've seen this time and time again that our offense kind of falls off, and it pretty much just relies on Mitchell to be a one-man show. And... I don't think that's going to work where we can just rely on Mitchell to do everything for us offensively because it didn't work last year, even though, you know, because he was injured, he couldn't play defense as well, but he did everything he could for us. And then it still wasn't enough for us to beat the Clippers. And this was a Clippers team that didn't even have their best player. So right. to be clear, I'll be what I'm saying is imagine a scenario in which whatever offensive revolution that this team has kind of uncovered this season does persist through the postseason. So like, you know, Donovan Mitchell is still playing the same way. They're still able to run all their beautiful motion stuff. And then if that doesn't work and teams are switching, then he punishes those switches. If that persists and they can stay as the best offense in the entire NBA, that does give them some leeway to just outscore teams, right? Like, I'm, I, you're absolutely right that maybe they, it can't persist. If it can't persist, they're in trouble because I don't think they can, you know, probably play good enough perimeter defense to win four rounds unless their offense is just going crazy. But I'm saying if it could, at least they have that pathway, right? Like a lot of other teams can't say, we can score 116 points per 100 possessions like the Jazz can. In fact, literally nobody can right now. So that gives them at least a different way to do it besides just relying on guys actually, you know, playing elite defense. 
But the question I have for you guys when it comes to their offense is, in the playoffs, the pace of the game as a whole slows down, right? And I saw something somewhere where they, they said the reason why the Suns are so good in the playoffs is because Chris Paul operates the team at a pace that when they get to the playoffs, they're used to that slower pace. So the question is, with the change of pace that the playoffs bring, can the Jazz adapt to that? I love that point, Oswee. I mean, it's it's a really good one. And history has shown that teams that have these elite offenses in part based upon fast pace of play tend to do a little bit worse than, as you said, like a team like the Suns, which are basically playing every game like a playoff game because Chris Paul is playing it so slowly. So that's a good point because, you know, Anu mentioned before how much easy offense their pace generates. When all basketball gets slower, that's going to slow down their offense inevitably, at least a little bit. Yeah, I mean, there's that. And the other thing to factor in is, you know, free throws, right? Donovan Mitchell is, I think, top 10 right now in the NBA in terms of generating free throw attempts. That's also going to be slowed down. Now, that am I saying Donovan Mitchell is going to be ineffective in the playoffs? Hell no. I mean, this guy every year has showed himself out in the playoffs and they've gone, he's gone ballistic. But even then, that it's not enough, right? So they need to not only have a good offensive system within the regular season, but they need to translate that into the playoffs where they not only have Donovan Mitchell as the main contributor, but to have those other guys like the Bogdanoviches, the Jordan Clarksons, the Mike Conleys of the world, you know, chip in here and there to, to help them. I would add that out of a, a season in which just about every person on the team is playing better than they had, you know, previous year. The one guy who has fallen off a little bit is Jordan Clarkson. And I think, you know, they could use his bench punch that he gives that team, especially in the playoffs. So hopefully he can kind of recover that a little bit. Yeah, I totally agree with you there because we do need, you know, like the boost that Jordan Clarkson gives because if he's not, you know, scoring like how we did last year, then he doesn't really do much for us because he's not a good defender and his playmaking isn't at the level where it would be excusable for him to not be as good offensively. So his field goal percentage being under 40% and his three-point percentage being barely 30% is very concerning. So hopefully, you know, it's like a slump that he'll be able to get out of. But if not, then we're going to be in trouble when we have to, like, look at our bench and hope that we can, that our bench will be able to give us some good production. So, Abhi, you know, you're a Jazz fan, and I have to imagine that you have thought about these weaknesses and ways that you could shore them up. I know Anu tells us that you have been busy with that trade machine looking for some moves <laughs> that could boost your team. So now that we got you in front of an international audience, tell us, Abi, what would you do to improve the Jazz? Well, as much as I love him, I think that we might have to trade Boyan Bogdanovich or Joe Ingles because, you know, as seen in the playoffs, he was a negative defender. And... I do think that there's Are a you lot talking about Bogdanovich here or Ingles specifically. Boy Bogdanovich, sorry. Okay. Yeah. So Boy Bogdanovich in this case, um, you know, he's a great three point shooter. You know, he can drive to the rim. He's a really good free throw shooter. He does a lot of good things for you, but it's just defensively he gets killed time and time again. Marcus Morris killed this guy, and he was able to get to a spot so easily and post him up. Bogdanovich couldn't do anything to stop it. But I do think that his like his shooting and his ability to, like to space would definitely be missed. And I think that would be very valuable for other teams. So a guy that I was looking towards and think that maybe we may, we might be able to get him is 
possibly a Harrison Barnes from the Kings. Ooh, I, I, that would be an amazing addition. I mean, a guy who, he's actually the perfect sort of small ball four. He's proven that he can hold himself up in the post. He can guard a perimeter guy. He can hit an open three. That'd be amazing. I mean, and the Kings probably could use some sort of a rebuild here, but they're the only team that doesn't realize that, so they might actually chase it a veteran. <laughs> so, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on. AC, you say rebuild implying that they've built anything to begin with, so... So every year, their mandate is, yeah. Vivek Ranadiva tells them, they have to make the playoffs, and every year they fail. So once again, that's what they're going for, their mantra right now. So they're the exact kind of team that would trade away a younger player for, you know, a guy who doesn't belong on the Kings roster. <laughs> so it's not it's not bad scouting there, Robbie. <laughs> this is just an aside, but guys, at some point we have to do a, a Kings pod because the amount of crazy shit that the Kings have done within the last, like, Two decades is just too ridiculous <laughs> to not talk about. I'm not even a Kings fan, and that hurts me to like, you know, to look at <laughs> and think. Yeah, it's a shame because it's a, it's a city that loves their basketball. They've had such a bad run here. Abi, so is it fair to say then what you're targeting then is some sort of a defensive improvement? So basically, you're trading away some of your offense because I mean, we, I think we'd all agree that Bogdanovich is a huge part of why you guys have this elite offense. His spacing. You know, people are afraid to leave him open. But unfortunately for him, for a guy who actually was a pretty solid defender when he was in Indiana, I mean, famously there was a series where they played against, you know, the Cavs, and he did a pretty good job guarding LeBron, for instance. But he has lost a step or two on defense. And while he can still hold up against bigger players at times, he is really struggling now with faster players. And again, this is a team which doesn't have any good perimeter defenders, as, as you guys have mentioned multiple times here on this pod, Anu and Abi. So th- that's a trade-off that makes sense to me. Give some of that offense away for defense. Unless the counterpoint would be that you just go all in on offense and just say, we're just going to outscore everybody and win a championship that way. We're going to win by being the number one offense. And we don't want to trade any little bit of offense for defense. I mean, I can see that being an approach as well. I just don't think that's going to be very viable in the playoffs, though, because as you said, the playoffs are played with a much slower pace and the Jazz play with the typically faster pace so I just don't think that's going to be it wouldn't work out long term yes maybe like in the regular season we would clean up but what about in the playoffs when things become a lot slower and I think that Harrison Barnes he might be able to fit in better because when the game gets slower and when guys are attacking he'd be able to defend and hold his own a bit better and in the playoffs I mean as long as he just defends and you know hits his open threes that's way more than we could ask for. Yeah, I mean, I think Harrison Barnes is a a great signing, right? And it's not even like, yes, you do give up a lot of your offense, but you still retain a lot of your offense, too, with a guy like Harrison Barnes. He's no slouch on that end. He's having an incredible year, maybe so much so that his trade value is probably going to go up if they do look to move him this year. But he, he can definitely space the floor. He can shoot. He can get to the basket, finish at the rim. You know, he he can provide a lot especially if you put him in a situation where he's going to be a role player now and one that will definitely be able to contribute anywhere between 15 to 20 points easy a night. I definitely think it would be a good trade if you can manage to grab him. And also, Abi, you mentioned Joe Ingles. Well, he's an expiring contract, so he's definitely someone in a trade because I can think of a lot of teams who could use Joe Ingles. 
I'll be. I'm actually curious what the Jazz fans' perspective on Ingles is right now because I think Oswe is dead on. I think there's so many teams around the NBA that could use a guy who's a three and D guy. I know that the numbers and even the eye test shows that he's not the defender that he was even last season this year. So he slipped a bit on that end. But I always think of him as kind of a critical part of Jazz culture, just as a ball mover. But he may just be your best trade asset, period, because as we said, he's expiring. And so many teams could use sort of a big wing who can hit threes. I mean, I'm going to miss him. You know, I love the trash talk. I love everything that he brings to the table. And it's going to be hard, you know, like if we do have to trade Joe Ingles, I'm going to be sad. I'm, I'm going to be very sad about it, honestly. But if it does make the team better and we can get something very good in return, then I would be okay with it because it's going to keep happening where, you know, when he's on the floor, he's going to get exposed because like you said, his defense is even worse than it was last year. And he was a bad defender last year. So like us, we said, there's a lot of guys that could use someone like Joe Ingles. So although it would be a hit and it would be really sad to lose him, I think it would just make this team so much better if we could maybe move off of him and get someone like Harrison Barnes or someone else that can actually, you know, do the D part of the three and D. Let's not forget guys. He's also, pretty good at being sort of like a point forward type of player as well right he has great vision you know not a really spectacular athlete or ball handler but you know he plays with that kind of like slow-mo type of type of vibe to him where he can like read the defense read what's going on and, and make plays and i really he's a connector on who exactly he's a yeah. connector on who like he's uh, like one of those guys right like you think about uh Boris Diaw for the Spurs, right? Oh, yeah, great comparison. Or, or a much worse version of this, but someone like Luke Walton would do for the old Lakers team is when they had Kobe and Pau Gasol. Like, a guy who just runs the offense. Like, he just, like, makes yeah. the pass between the star from the star to the, the key three-point shooter. That kind of guy is, like, invaluable. And, and, you know, another guy who does that, I, I know, will be really useful in the playoffs this year is a guy like Alex Caruso. And, like, he's a connector. Like, he just makes the plays between the plays. And... That kind of guy is, is tough to give up because he's also a culture setter for that team. Yeah, I mean, and speaking of like culture and things of that nature, right? Like Joe Ingles is one of those guys who, you know, he's like known around the league as sort of being that like buddy buddy at some points, but also just a huge fucking dick at other points. And I've listened a lot to, you know, JJ Reddick's <laughs> podcast and the things he says about Joe Ingles. Like it makes me laugh because, you know, guys in the NBA circle, like, they they recognize each other, right? Like, they know each other. And everyone knows Joe Ingles, right? They know who he is. So having a guy like that on your team especially is just, like, wonderful to have, right? So I'm sure a lot of teams would look for him not only based on his skill set, but, you know, what he brings from a culture perspective. So ultimately then, Abi, you're okay with trading some combination of possibly both of Bogdanovich and also Ingles. Yes. As painful as it is, yes, I would be okay with it. And I think that if we ever want to win a championship, then we might have to part ways with them. So say we all. Well, I think that's a great place to stop. Abhi, thank you so much for joining us today. Hopefully you and the other five jazz fans that exist will, <laughs> will have some luck this year. That's rough. At least we're 
<laughs> at least we're winning games. As an aside, uh, usually when Ubi and I watch the the jazz games, we always play a little game of let's see if we can find the one black fan <laughs> that the Utah Jazz have, <laughs> and it's usually sometimes we never find the black fan. <laughs> and, Is it just Carl Malone sitting in the front row, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sitting in his fishing gear, just like <laughs> getting ready? Okay, to well, okay, well, just so you guys know, like if I was a millionaire. And I lived in Utah. I would go to every single Utah game. <laughs> All right, then there'd be the one brown fan. <laughs> yes, there'd be, yes, I'd be the one POC there, so you guys can't say anything. <laughs> well, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Be sure to like, comment, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to hit us up by emailing us at brownmenwontjump at gmail.com or on Instagram at brownmenwontjump. We hope to see you in the next one. Take care and be safe. All right, guys. Peace. All right. Thanks for having me. Take care, everyone. Jokic MVP?